Well, our passage this morning starts with a clever plan. Uh, Ahithophel, who is David's former trusted counselor, now defector to Absalom's side, has worked out exactly what to do to defeat David. So he knows David is going to be tired. He's been on the run for days. He's poorly prepared. He's ill-equipped. His defensive troops are yet to be organized and probably yet to be fed. He also knows, doesn't he, Ahithophel knows that only one man needs to die for Absalom to win the kingdom. That's David. So here's his advice. Listen, Absalom, don't waste any time. Uh, Let me lead a team of 12,000 men. We'll go, we'll get David, we'll kill David, and you can have the kingdom. Now, we mustn't miss as we start out what a brilliant plan that is. The writer is going out of his way time and again to make sure that you know that Ahithophel's plan, told you it's more difficult to say the more he said it, Ahithophel's plan is a brilliant one. Notice that he's right about David and his men being weary and vulnerable. The writer has underlined that twice already, chapter 16, verse 14, and again at the end of our chapter in verse 29. He's right, David is tired. Verse 4, the elders of Israel all agree with the plan. In verse 21, it seems as if the messengers that uh, Hushai sends still assume that Ahithophel's plan is such a good one that it will still be implemented. But despite all of that, despite all those underlinings that this plan is a good one, still it fails. Why? Well, take a look at verse 14. What does verse 14 say? For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm on Absalom. If you're in the habit of underlining verses in the Bible, maybe you want to underline that one in this passage because it's the key verse, not if you're in a church Bible, but if in your own Bible, you might want to underline it. This is the key verse. This is explaining the whole of the chapter. This chapter is God versus Ahithophel. Let me try and show you what I mean. Look back at verse 23. I was grateful that Jen read verse 23 as well. Notice that Ahithophel's advice is taken like listening to the word of God, it says. In other words, this guy is no dumb upstart. He's no newbie in the king's court. Instead, he is the man that everybody listens to. He's the Dominic Cummings of his day, maybe, he says with a wince. Or maybe like the kid in class who knows all the right answers. He's the colleague who always knows in whatever situation what the right thing is to do. But chapter 17 tells you that for all this respect and despite his wisdom being thought of like the word of God, still it is not the word of God because even when it's right, even when it's wise, it still doesn't come to pass. The contrast comes out really clearly in the repetition of a Hebrew word, sheva, in our passage. It means command or instruct or ordain. It's the word used in verse 14 that we've just seen when the Lord ordains the defeat of Ahithophel's counsel so that Absalom can be punished. But interestingly, in our passage, it's used again, this time of Ahithophel, in verse 23. Notice there, it's translated by our English Bible, set his house in order. Uh, You could, it makes no sense really in English, but you could literally say that Ahithophel commanded his house and then hung himself. I I don't think here either we're to understand he's hanging himself in some kind of suicidal despair, as in, why is nobody listening to my brilliant advice anymore? I don't think that's it. Rather, Ahithophel knows, oh my goodness, if they're going to follow Hushai's plan, I'm a dead man, and I might as well kill myself. 
But the repetition of that Hebrew word is so that we see this comparison that while God ordains the defeat of Ahithophel's council and the punishment of Absalom, Ahithophel ordains what? Well, the pencils on his desk. You know, you put it more bluntly, can't you? God is in command of everything. Ahithophel is in command of very little. God is big. Ahithophel, even though he's super smart, is very small. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment, but run through the rest of the story, and let's just make sure we get it straight in our minds. Absalom makes a big mistake, doesn't he, in verse 5, when he decides to ask Hushai, the archite, to give his opinion on Ahithophel's plan. Hushai, you might remember, was David's friend who was wanted to go on the run with David, but David sent him back to frustrate Ahithophel's advice. And Absalom gives Hushai an overview of the plan and asks in verse 6, what do you think about that? Hushai then, as bold as brass, and when we remember how respected Ahithophel is, this is a bold thing for him to say. He says, no, that's a bad plan. Which, of course, it wasn't a bad plan. It's just Hushai is on a mission, isn't he? So he accuses Ahithophel of underestimating David. Oh, he's forgotten that he's going to be like a raging bear that's been robbed of his cubs. He's going to be mad. Hushai is also pretty clever, though, isn't he? And, and notice the way that these advice is set up to Absalom. Let me read through, firstly, Ahithophel's advice, and then I'll read through Hushai's advice, and you can compare and contrast. They'll come up on the screen. Uh, look at verse 1. Notice what Ahithophel says. He says this, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he's weary and discouraged and throw him into panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. Now, look down at verse 11, compare that to what Hushai says. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go into battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley and until not even a pebble is to be found there. Do you see it? Ahithophel might know how best to win a kingdom, but Hushai knows best how to win Absalom. Do you notice that? Hushai knows that Absalom is terribly vain, and so he flatters him. He places Absalom right at the center of the plan. He says, look at this great victory. We'll, we'll pull it down until not a pebble's left. No support is alive. And Absalom can't resist that kind of talk, can he? So he goes with Hushai's plan. Hushai then sends people to warn uh, David of Absalom's plans uh, using the communication method that was set up when David fled by telling Zadok and Abithar the priests who then pass their message on to their sons via a servant girl. But they're seen doing it, aren't they? And Absalom sends men after them. So they run and get hidden down a well before eventually getting the message to David who on hearing it crosses the uh, Jordan River at night just to be safe, ending up in a place called Mahanaim, which is where Ishbosheth, Saul's son, had been trying to rule Israel from, you might remember. And the chapter ends with Absalom crossing the Jordan with his massive army and David being provided for by more foreigners. Now, I've told you already that the story is this contrast between God and Ahithophel, between man's best wisdom and God's supreme power. But let's think about that some more. Think about how is it that God defeats Ahithophel's wisdom? 
what in the passage is the demonstration of God's power that means Absalom is going to be held to account? I think the surprise is that when you read through the story is that God is hardly mentioned, is he? There's no lightning strike, there's no voice from heaven, there's no angel of death, there's no giant hailstones. Instead, all you've got in, that, in verse 14 is the little word, for, telling you that in one sense, in all of it, everything that is happening here happens at the command of God himself. Let me just tease out in, in three quick ways why, how that uh, understanding helps us understand the passage. Let me give you three examples. It means, doesn't it, if verse 14 is right, it means that God ordains the vanity of Absalom's heart. Think about that for a moment. It's not just that God knows that Absalom is vain. More than that, verse 14 tells us that while Absalom is morally responsible and free, he's not being forced in any way, still God commanded or ordained that Absalom be vain enough to listen to a faulty plan instead of a good one. Don't make a mistake, though, with this. This is not kind of human freedom versus God's plan, as if those two things are fighting each other for supremacy. No, rather, this is both at the same time, isn't it? And it's not that freedom is a little bit limited to allow God to be a little bit sovereign or a little bit in charge. Rather, the writer wants you to understand that God is so supremely in charge of all things that Absalom can be completely free to do whatever he wants to do, but is still under God's supreme authority, even in his vanity. Now, that, that is utterly mind-blowing, but it's also brilliant, as we'll come and see more in a moment. Think again, then, about the empty well. These two young men are on the run, and they dive down a well to hide. You know, they didn't get lucky, did they? God was at work defeating the council of Ahithophel, getting the news to David. You can imagine, can't you, the story, these two young guys, you know, probably absolutely paralyzed by fear as they're on the run. Know that they've been seen, are desperate to find somewhere to hide. They run into this kind of courtyard area. They find an empty well and they dive down it and this woman covers it. It's not hard, is it, to imagine the sort of bravado of these young men. You know, they're kind of in the way that only young men can. You know, they, they come out of the well and they start congratulating each other. They oh, well done, mate. How cool are we? We managed to flee from them. Do you see my, my duck and roll back there? What great ninja skills the two of us have got. Kind of high-fiving each other. But that's not what happens, is it? That's not how we're to understand it. That's not the angle that 2 Samuel wants to give us on it. The writer wants us to understand that the provision of a friendly family with an empty well and a savvy wife who was good at lying, notice. All of that was part of God's plan. God ordained a lying wife with an empty well. He made that happen. What about this? God ordains the support of foreign kings. It's the same story, isn't it, at the end of the chapter with these foreign kings who supply a long and strange list of David's needs at the end of the chapter. Israel and Absalom are getting ready for the war while the Ammonites and the Gilead are coming to supply David, strengthening them for the war that's bound to follow. God had ordained that. Even the cheese and the honey, every lentil and every bean, getting there because God had commanded it so that David and his army will be ready for the battle that Absalom and his vanity has been tricked into fighting as God ordained it. But as well as noticing the detail of God's control, that actually in his sovereign plan, he needs to be in control of even human freedom. 
notice as well there's a direction to his control as well. He's not just commanding all things because he can command all things or because he likes to be in control. No, instead, all things in the passage, the lying, the vanity, the charity, the loyalty, all of those things, both intended and unintended, all of those things are working for a singular goal, the preservation of God's kingdom, the success of his king, and the defeat of his enemies. Working, as verse 14 puts it, to bring harm or disaster to Absalom. Now, at that level... You can see, can't you, that 2 Samuel 17 is a pointer forward to a bigger story, a bigger fulfillment. When 1,500 years later, God is still at work, even through the wicked motives of a friend's betrayal, to bring victory to his king and disaster to his enemy. You know, God silently ordains the evil intentions and the vanity of the hearts of the Jewish leaders, so much so that they're freely entered into betrayal of the Lord Jesus and calling for his crucifixion is still part of God's sovereign and ordained plan to exalt his king and to defeat his enemies. As the Lord Jesus dies on the cross, is resurrected to new life, destroying the devil's power and defeating sin once and for all. You know, God in 2 Samuel 17 is working silently for the exaltation of King David. But in the giant sweep of all of scripture, God is silently at work for the exaltation of King Jesus the one before whom all of us will one day bow. Now, of course, we could say more about that, but I want, as we finish, just to think of two particular places where this will land for us this morning. The first one is this. Beware that you are free to sin. I I think we mustn't miss this grave warning in the passage that's hanging over Absalom, that Absalom is entirely free to sin and even to experience a measure of success in that, But still, as Absalom does that, we are not to understand that he is outside of God's sovereign plan. Remember, Absalom starts off his rebellion with an act of worship and sacrifice to the Lord God in Hebron. Absalom didn't see himself as a rebel. He rather saw himself as a restorer of justice to the nation which he thought had lost its way under David. And God let him get on with it, granted even a level of success in it. And that, I think, carries a grave warning for you and for I this morning. We are not to assume that just because we don't get struck by lightning when we sin, everything is okay. People think like that at times, don't they? God's not stopped me yet. Must be okay then. But we're not to think like that. Our vanity, our covetousness, our lust, our pride, our anger, all of those internal motivations, I am free to indulge in without ever threatening God's sovereign power to hold me to account in eternity. I am free to sin, but God is still in control. Let me say to you this morning, that is why becoming a Christian mostly feels like surrender. Becoming a Christian is not turning over a new leaf and promising to be good where we've been bad. We've had plenty of chances like that, haven't we? We've blown them all. Becoming a Christian is saying to God, Oh my goodness, Lord, I realize now that I've been living in my freedom as if you were never sovereign, as if it was my freedom that ruled my world, as if I was in charge and what I wanted to do was the most important thing. But I've made a terrible mess, and now I surrender. Please forgive me. Please help me to live under your good rule rather than my chaotic rule. And really, 
that if, if becoming a Christian is surrendering like that to the God who is sovereign, then listen this morning, if you're not a Christian, it is only a matter of time before you do that. The question is, will you surrender to his sovereign power today, willingly and joyfully enjoying the mercy and love of the Lord Jesus? Or will you surrender to him in disgrace on the day that you meet him in judgment and you realize once and for all you were terribly wrong? You are free to sin, but God is still in charge. Finally, though, Jesus will always win. This is clearly the main point. I want us to end this so that it's ringing in our ears as we finish. 2 Samuel 17 tells you that God in his sovereign power will command all things to establish the rule of his anointed king. All things to establish the rule of his anointed king. That even death and hell cannot stand in the way. The wicked wicked motives of our hearts cannot stand in the way. The jealous motives of the religious leaders of his day cannot stand in his way. The cleverest plans of the wisest people, none of those can stand in the way. In fact, the opposite. So close is God to his creation in his sovereign power. So involved is he in his world that in his great power, all of those things only ever work to the accomplishment of his plan in glory. Jesus will always win. Which means, doesn't it, that the safest place in all the world, really the only safe place in all the world, is with the Lord Jesus. Just imagine it like this, if you can, with me for a moment. Imagine that 2 Samuel 17 is like a double-sided postcard. On the front of the postcard is a is a terribly dark picture of a savage war, of wicked betrayal, of scheming wise men. And as far as you can tell from the picture, it seems as though these guys are getting away with it. It seems to be that the point of the picture is that to win in life, you have to be savvy like Ahithophel, or powerful like Absalom, or good-looking like Absalom. But then on the postcard, in the corner is 2 Samuel 17, verse 14. Please turn over. And you flip the card over. And on the other side is a different picture. It's the same wicked men are there, the same savage war, the same wicked betrayal, but above it are the golden rays of a beautiful sunshine, the radiance of God's glorious providence. And it's shining down on a crown and a cross and an empty tomb. And the words are written there, Jesus will always win and below is an invitation which says join him join him surrender all to Jesus and enter his kingdom to see that behind it all above everything that we can see is the sovereign glory of God's good providence that we cannot see but is at work working all things for the plan of his king Jesus And you and I are invited to die with him, to rise with him, to belong to him, to lay down our own schemes and our own plans, to give up our own ambitions and our own clever wisdom and our own dreams, and to pick up from him bigger dreams and bigger ambitions than a fancy car or a nice house or a good education, better things than that, to dream of an eternity with the person that we were made for in a world remade by his glory forever and ever and ever and ever. 
So this is the invitation to lose our little plans and his big ones, to find joy and delight in the fact that with Jesus, no one and nothing can destroy you. There's no way that you can be robbed of your treasure with him. There's no accusation which can rob you of your confidence. There's no plan that can derail your future because God ordains all things for the victory of his king, Jesus, and the defeat of his enemies. I've been uh, pondering this through the week and, and trying to pray through what does this what does this mean for me? What does this mean for you this morning? And it occurred to me that there's a really simple test to see whether you've really understood the providence of God or the sovereignty of God in 2 Samuel 17. So I've been thinking about it like this. Maybe this will help you. It's been a help to me this week. You know, when it comes to my life and my future, when it comes to thinking through the situation that I find myself in or the problems that I'm facing, how much of my time do I spend trying to puzzle through it talking about it, trying to work out what to do? And how much of my time do I spend on my knees acknowledging that basically and fundamentally I am exactly where Christ wants me to be? I don't mean that as a stick to beat us with. It's not like, pray more, you fool. It's not that. This instead, it's an invitation, isn't it? To be liberated from this, for this. To be liberated from these endless trying to work out what you're going to do and what your situation means and this invitation to bow the knee to king jesus and to live with him you see the truth is is that god is silently at work for the security and the victory of jesus and the more and more that my life is about living for him the less and less i have to worry let me say that again the more and more that my life is captivated and captured by living for Jesus, the less and less I have to worry. Because all things work out for the victory of King Jesus. And it's not that I must pray, it's that I get to pray. In the middle of whatever it is that I'm facing, I get to, on my knees, to say, thank you, Lord. All things are in your good hands. You're working all things for the victory of King Jesus. God, my God, the Father of my Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, the giver of the Spirit who now dwells in me. That triune God is totally in charge, and I can totally trust him. Let me pray. Let's just take a few moments of quiet. We don't get much quiet, do we, these days? Let's just take a few moments of quiet to reflect on and ponder, and maybe just to pray in your own heart surrendering to King Jesus, thankful that he's in charge of all things, that the more and more our lives are about living for him, the less and less we have to worry. Loving Heavenly Father, we want to pray this morning that you might give us a stronger grasp, a clearer understanding of your great power and providence. That you are the God who ordains all things for the glory of your King and the defeat of his enemies. We pray that our lives might be more and more about living for the Lord Jesus. 
that we might have less and less to worry about, that we might trust you in all things, knowing that in everything you know exactly what you're doing, that the motives of our hearts, the thoughts of other people's hearts, the actions of others, our own actions, all of these are under your sovereign hand. We bow the knee to you. In Jesus' name, amen.